Hey everybody and welcome to the Darkcast. This is DCI number 52 and I'm your host Jonathan Miley. In this episode I got to talk to a couple of developers at Inkle, which is a which is the game studio that brought us Sorcery, the iOS game that melds interactive storytelling and tabletop role playing and all kinds of of crazy stuff like that. Uh, and today we are talking about 80 Days, a new interactive fiction slash steampunk version of the Jules Verne classic Around the World in 80 Days. In this interview, I'm talking to Meg Giant, who is the, the main writer on the game. She joined us a little ways into the interview. Also joining us are the studio's co-founders, Joseph Humphrey and John Ingold. We had a great conversation talking about the game. I hope you enjoy it. So if you want to find out more information about Inkle or 80 Days, check out the show notes to this episode on DarkStation.com. You can follow us on Twitter at DarkStation underscore com, and you can subscribe to the podcast. We're on iTunes. We're the DarkCast. While you're there, give us a review and let us know what you think of the show. As always, thank you for listening. Now on with the show. today how are you doing doing great yeah. hey yeah not too bad um a few weeks from finally shipping so we're a little bit uh yeah tired, tired. to say it lightly yeah, absolutely <laughs> the, la- the last stretch is always the toughest but otherwise sure. yeah. yeah in the middle of crunch time and a baby turning one year old do you yeah. sleep john uh, <laughs> I think I've just given up on it for the moment. I'm looking forward to taking like a full week off to do some DIY after the project is finished. But a little bit yeah. off that. It's and funny my... how I started to relish gardening now. I mean, I used to hate it, but when you get stuck in and crunch for so long, suddenly gardening is like this wonderful thing where you get to go outside into the sun and use your hands. <laughs> it's that thing though, we're not allowed to call it crunch because we're an indie studio and indie yeah. studios shouldn't crunch. So it's, we're just, it's just passion. It's just passion. It's passion. passion. That's what it is. Is passion manifested in the way that you're working? Exactly. We are in the throes of passion. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. So you guys are only uh, a couple of weeks away from shipping, so that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's been um, it's been quite a long project. This one. It. uh, Mm. I think we we had the concept about. God, about a year and a half ago, something Mm. like that. And Mm. um, I can't remember whether it was before we finished sorcery i think it was during we were working on sorcery and we were kind of thinking of other things we wanted to do and this this sort of idea popped up we thought oh that'd be cool we could do that um i can't really believe it now you pick it up and it, it basically works you know a few bugs <laughs> bits, but like it's mostly done and mm. almost at the point where you look at it and think well who did that mm. but um not it's quite funny a year and a half's kind of um quite a, ve- a very long time for us. For some indie developers, three years seems yeah. to be just like the standard, but mm-hmm. for us, we were kind of quite proud of the fact that we'd never done a project that's lasted longer than six months and that we always stayed on schedule. Or, and, and we sort yeah. of have stayed on schedule, but at the same time, yeah, no, this is this has been epic. It was felt epic yeah, to us. Absolutely, definitely. this is truly epic. <laughs> so, so is the year and a half, has that been kind of on schedule for what you were hoping, or has that been like every six months it's like well let's put another six months on this and it'll be that much better 
Well, I mean, the, the year and a half contained, you know, a lot of development of other games. So mm, we I had gotcha. the concept, but we were we were making Sorcery at the time, and then after that we moved on and we did Sorcery 2. Mm. Uh, in between, we did a, an interactive graphic novel for Penguin. Um, mm. Have we done anything else in the middle? I feel like we have. Oh, we, yeah, we did, um, we did a poetry app for Penguin as well. Um, mm. So we haven't really been working on 80 days full-time since about January, and yeah. we're, we're pretty much to schedule. Meg, the writer, started in November last July, year. I think. I think it was really. Just, yeah, yeah. I, I remember we started talking to her really early, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then she went off and worked on her own. I didn't really read anything that she'd written for like the first five months, and I came back and I was like, "What the hell is this?" Mm. <laughs> um, it was good. It was good. It was really nice. It's the first project where we've worked with a a, a writer outside the studio as well, because everything mm. we do is is based around text sort of text and beautiful art and we hire in the art and Joe does the UI stuff but the writing I've always done myself um, and it's been really good actually mm. really good makes awesome it's funny as a studio well most most video game studios have these core areas of kind of design art and coding and audio I guess but uh, like writing in our studio is one of the kind of one of the core pillars of what we do and it's funny that that that's just become like one of those core areas, as if as if that's just a normal Like some some video game companies do have writers, but it's kind of in a, in a very small way. It's they're kind of it's a particular kind of writing that we do though, because everything is so mm. interactive. Like mm. it's very rare to get more than. 50, 60 words, maybe 150 words a push without having some kind of branching choice. Mm. And even every one of those will have some logic in it, it'll have some code buried in it, in mm -hmm. script, really. Because um, everything we do is incredibly flexible and kind of branching and diverse. So quite often when I, when I see like writers from video game companies talking or, you know, the kind of famous freelance writers who are out there who do a lot of projects, and I kind of think, actually, whatever we do is not what you do. Like, a lot of those people are basically script writers mm. who happen mm -hmm. to work video games. And, and I write script, but script in the technical sense of the word script, not mm. in the film sense. Mm. So I don't know that we do have writers. We have, like, textual designers. Yeah, something. exactly. Textual exactly. designers. I like that. That's good. Yeah, it's, it's completely impossible to separate the the writing from the design, really, because the mechanics of the game are almost in the way that the text flows. Mm. Right? Which mm. is, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's the thing is that a lot of people kind of look at the stuff we do and they say, oh, it's choose your own adventure, and we kind of always sit there and go, it doesn't really feel like choose your own adventure, actually. I mean, it's text and it's got choices, but it's it's exactly that. It's text, but it it. It has a flow to it, which mm -hmm. Choose Your Adventure never did. It mm, feels right. more like a platform game in mm. terms of its flow, except you're pushing buttons and getting paragraphs of text, not moving a little box around the screen. Mm. And it mm -hmm. kind of spins itself out, and that plays you the course of the level. Um, it's interesting how how some people's definition of kind of Choose Your Own, choose your own Adventure is so broad, though, because mm, we're out there... Um, yeah, right. Yeah, which we love, <laughs> and and they love us. I think. Yeah, no, no, it's really nice to see other studios working in that kind of same sort of space yeah. and kind of wibbly wobbly story mixed in with yeah. gameplay. And it's funny because that, that is quite um, a roguelike, um, and it does have kind of bits of text that add a lot of character to the missions that you're going on. But at the same time, it it doesn't feel like choose your own adventure in this. Like, oh, we're definitely much more along that axis than they are. Kind of, it feels like. 
uh, it's a, a piece of text that pops up when you enter in a new system. Yeah. So I guess there are. I, I think it, it's the the difference between us and and, and eighty days is a, a project which is a lot like out there in some ways. It's got kind of a map you explore and you're making mm. progress and you're mm. collecting items and there's sort of mm. various resources. So mm. it's structurally very similar. It's just we have a lot more text and a lot fewer. Um, crafting well we don't have any crafting that's, yeah. that's kind of the, the, where the balance is mm. and but the thing which we end up doing differently I think is that we have a definite sense that time is passing the whole time so yeah, the kind yeah. of text that you get on day 40 is completely different than the text you get yeah, on day yeah. 5 and and there is plot and progression whereas yeah, we've kind of got an act structure yeah mm -hmm. absolutely whereas a game like out there has it actually out there does have an act structure because you get the that's aliens true, towards that's the end true. which is cool but the the content within each bit is quite piecemeal and quite mm. randomized and mm. i think that's that's the big difference that's the thing that makes us more choosing or adventurish is that we have a bit more of a beginning middle and an end which is yeah. fine i guess they have they almost have the luxury of being able to have procedural content and they can do that very easily because who knows what the structure of the galaxy is really like and what's in all, in all of these different solar systems. Yeah, but yeah. one thing that we've hit on this project is that we've had to recreate the world, which means... Yeah. Right, you can't procedurally generate Earth. Yeah. No, and <laughs> like, we really tried as well. We, we, we had an idea for kind of making, you know, okay, so there's all these cities and they're linked by boats and there'll be some boats with unique adventures on them but some of them will just be this kind of generic background fuzz so it's just you have a boat style adventure and you try and write that but it turns out that every word in the description of a boat in say Greece is completely different than a boat in the yeah. Sudan it's completely like, different and the cities than the themselves are even worse I mean yeah you you just you're just bordering on racism the moment you try to, <laughs> to write generic yeah, content in like cities around the world it's just it's just plain rude. So, right, so one of the reasons Meg has been a, a brilliant sort of player on the project is that she, when we started, we said, look, you, you can write little bits of content here and there where you think there's something interesting and we'll, we'll fill in the rest with this generic stuff. And then halfway through, we pretty much said, okay, the generic stuff doesn't work. We need you to write 150 well-researched, balanced cities with interactive content in them, plus about 350 <laughs> journeys linking them together. And she said, okay, that's supposed to be you guys. Um, and... You so, know, some these are big and some are little, but she's done a huge amount of work to bring each one to life, and each one genuinely is unique. Um, so was but, it just the kind of sheer amount of writing that needed to be done uh, that she went outside of the company? Because obviously, I mean, as as we've been talking, uh, and if anyone looks at at sorcery, you know, writing is a huge part of Inkle. Uh, so was it just that you had so much that you needed kind of extra help with it, or? Uh, what was no, kind of the impetus in getting another writer on there? The the, the original plan was uh, we'd get another writer to write 80 Days and I could carry on writing sorcery so that we could make okay. sort of make more games. Um, that hasn't quite panned out, as it turned out, and that hasn't panned out because there's so much content. But I think also when we were looking at the idea for 80 Days, um, we wanted... We wanted to find... We wanted to find a writer for it who would bring a lot of value to that concept. It's sort of it's set in the 1870s. It's a time of colonialism and the British Empire. Verne has quite a simple take on that. He's he's not very multicultural. For him, sort of Britain and Europe define what the entire world is like, um, and everyone else outside of that box is just a bit weird or creepy. Um, and uh, we met Meg. Uh, oh, 
we met Meg a while ago. Uh, sorry, she's just popped up and uh, is wanting to play along. <laughs> she must have heard us talking about it. <laughs> we met Meg, and she had written an interactive game called Samsara, which is set in Bengal in, I think, 1750s or so, um, and had this mixture of the fantastic and the historical and the colonial and the cultural and the diverse, and she's just has this huge spread of interests, and that was really appealing and mm. I think it's been a real joy actually to see mm. her kind of taking this idea which I think we had quite a limited idea of, of what uh, what this mm. game would be about mm. what it would be like mm. when we started and she's really blown it open so yeah I mean you know, one thing that I guess we've just found working with her is that she's got immense amounts of creativity and she's a really good researcher as well which is hugely important for uh, writing this kind of content where you have to make these kind of uh, stories within different parts of the world feel right and make sense and mm. uh, have their own particular colour mm. for that and part of the world. She's really like, you know, sometimes you see conversations on blogs about games not having enough sort of female characters or enough ethnic characters and that kind of stuff. And like reading Meg's stuff, you just feel like that whole discussion is just totally primitive because we have a world. So it's full of men and women and gay people and straight people and there's, I think, a couple of transvestites here and there, and but they're culturally based because there was a transvestite class in 17th, 18th, mm. 19th century India, and Meg knows what it's called and has talked about it in an intelligent way. And mm. you know, when you go to Haiti, the people in Haiti are empowered and in control of their place, and they know what they're doing more than you do as a random lost Frenchman. And <laughs> uh, you know, you go to India, and there are Indians, and just everywhere we go, she sort of really brought the people. Out and so you start to look at the game and think, hang on, this is. Part of me wants to say, you know, this is one of the most diverse computer games that's ever been made, and then the mm. other part of me wants to say that's a really stupid thing to say because it's just set in the world. It's just got <laughs> people in it, as opposed to being like some white, attractive American who's been stuck in sorry the map of the world. Sorry. <laughs> um, So we were actually just talking about kind of the crazy amount of writing uh, that has been going into uh, 80 Days and the uh, kind of diversity of uh, cultures and people and types of people that uh, you've actually brought to the table, Meg, as far as just researching all of the different cities that are accessible in the game. Uh, so do you want to kind of talk a little bit about some of that from your perspective as opposed to uh, Joe and John just kind of praising you for bringing that awesomeness <laughs> well, it was actually probably a really good thing I wasn't around for that because again the Britishness would have just caused my head to explode um, <laughs> but yeah uh, actually I think that was that was one of the most exciting exciting aspects of um, of 80 days for me I mean um, you know when John and Joe came to me and said you know we want to do 80 days my first thought was what the hell am I going to do with Alda um, who, if you're familiar with 80 Days at all, is the is the Indian princess that Phileas 
uh, Fog and Passepartout rescue on their on their kind of journey across India. And, you know, she's being uh, she's she's been abducted by these Kali thuggies, uh, very kind of Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom style. Um, and it's always been one, of, you know, and I, I love 80 Days, but it's always been one of those elements of 80 <laughs> Days that's really, really bothered me. Uh, because she kind of doesn't really have any agency and she's just there to kind of be this princess in a tower to be rescued and then she sort of adores Fog. Um, and I, and I, I think actually like she was my kind of way into the entire world because I thought, how how would I write Alda and how could she be made, you know, a character in her own right um, and cool and interesting uh, without, you know, kind of being this weird um, adoring cipher. Um, and I realised, you know, the way to do that is to kind of have her have her own goals and motivations and and kind of cultural identity. Um, and I think that's a little bit that's sort of the approach I try to take when uh, writing about cultures that weren't you know my own uh, because uh, my family's from India and I and I'm Indian. Uh, I should probably say that on a on a podcast. It might be quite useful. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was a similar approach I took to kind of writing. You know. Uh, South Africa or the Zulu culture or um, cultures in Southeast Asia uh, you know are kind of uh, trying to see them as particular and individual um, and also trying to do my research and, and kind of be respectful which is a lot more fun than it sounds I, I should say <laughs> yeah well I mean I think it's, it's, it's the, the, the bit that really stands out for me is in uh, oh getting nasty feedback on the line there <laughs> Oh, okay. Hello. Hello. You yeah, sound yeah. sound crystal clear. I'm, I'm hearing an echo, though. Yeah, I'm hearing an echo too. Yeah. yeah. Is it gone now? Well, that sounds better. Huh. Weird. Okay. Okay. I'll I'll say what I was going to say again then. Um, so the bit that really stood out for me when I was reading through what you did was kind of uh, Panama and Central America and. There's uh, a point where it's, it's not really foregrounded very much, but you realize that the Haitians are building the Panama Canal under their own steam, using their own power, and about to take control of that entire area of the world. And the fact that you've kind of found real people and given them more agency than they actually had in history for our kind of alternate version, it's really interesting that it, it, it is way more interesting than just sort of doing either a summary version of history or a real version or even a kind of simplified version like Byrne does because it suddenly unlocks the potential for these much more interesting characters and situations than than Verne could allow himself because you've just sort of gone well let, let's just push each person in this part of the world just a little bit more to be kind of you know just a little bit more interesting than you might expect and it's I love that bit because I didn't see it coming at all and it, yeah, it just it really brought a little bit of the world that I haven't really thought about very much sort of to life. And then you move on and you get to the next one, and it it's sort of like you get you end up with this effect of a world that's just full of little gems, and they're not they're not big and they're not important. They're just they're just sparkling. And I, I thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, I, I think I think that's that's the thing. It allows you to kind of to be surprising and to take. I mean, I think you know we're all quite familiar with with kind of these narratives of, of kind of colonialism and a certain idea of say the British Raj or what um, kind of gold rush California is like or um, you know and all of these places we see them from these particular perspectives in this particular way and it's actually I think going to be really interesting for the player I mean it, it was really interesting for me as a writer to kind of try and unearth uh, to try and look at them in a slightly different way and, and like you say John to just kind of 
push those stories in a slightly unexpected direction, I think. Awesome. So what was the kind of impetus behind um, doing this slightly alternate version of the 1800s, uh, doing the kind of steampunk-ish world? Why, why, why change it from what was already there, and what did you change? Uh, how is this different from the, the way the story is in the, the book Around the World in 80 Days? The, the original idea for that, the original motivation for that is 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 a cold, hard, logical reason, which is which is this that in in eighteen seventy two when Byrne was set the book, there is only one way to get around the world in eighty days, and you can only just do it. Um, you have to go through the Suez Canal, you have to take the train across the middle of India, you have to take the steamer from New York. But we are all about sort of exploring. A map and branching the narrative and having lots and lots and lots of hidden locations and lots yeah. of replayability. As, as a branching story around the world, we want you to basically be a tourist. I mean, there's strategy there as well, so that you can choose lots of different routes, and and that kind of requires there to be these quite fantastical transports, so that you can go down the east coast of Africa in airships in order to make up time, even though that would have been completely infeasible. Yeah, exactly. Going, going down the east coast of Africa in 1872 in the reality would have been extremely time-consuming, very dangerous, <laughs> and a ludicrous way to go around the world. Whereas for us, it's an interesting side strategy, which might just pay off if you play it well. Mm. Um, and, you know, the same goes for uh, the same goes for kind of popping down to Australia, which, again, would be would be mental if you were in the real world. So uh, we, we basically took a steampunk direction so as to give ourselves a lot more scope to go to a lot more interesting places. Um, and that was, I think, when we pitched the project to Meg, that was what our plan was. It was that mm. simple. Owen oh, kind of mm. inventions are kind of cool. Um, and then, yeah, then we were working on Sorcery 2 and Meg went away and thought about this on her own and then came back with an entire flipping world. <laughs> yeah, and I can't, because it, it, it sort of, to me, that was just really exciting. And I thought, right, okay, so what what would change about the world? Um, you know, if, if sort of say, for instance, communication is much easier if there is, you know, a Trans-Siberian Railway, for instance, which there wasn't in uh, 1872, but there was, you know, about 30 years later. Um, <laughs> what if there was a, an Orient Express again? So, I mean, I think... So in some ways, um, the main change, uh, I think the, the most obvious change is that we've, we've pulled in technology of the next sort of 30 years. So the world feels a little bit more like the world uh, did at the turn of the century. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think what, in terms of what's changed, uh, I think, I mean, how much time do you have, really? Yeah. Um, I think there are, there are lots of, there are, there are kind of lots of, lots of big things. I mean, for one, there are kind of ind indigenous cultures of kind of technological innovation. And, I mean, it's almost not even really steampunk because it's n not necessarily steam technology um, kind of all over the world. But there, are, there, there is that same spirit of kind of, um, in, of a technological in innovation and change happening within kind of indigenous cultures outside of London. Uh, but, you know, I've kind of massively... That technology is quite hacky as well, which is like, yeah. gives it that sort of steampunk flavour. I think that it's often sort of it's some things you can imagine that have been hacked together to make something more impressive than mm. than you might get in the kind of in the real world. So mm. normal steampunk does that with coal and pipes and boilers and things, and we've done that with 
lots of other things that you could also hack together. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's kind of reflected in the art style as well because we haven't gone for the traditional kind of grimy, rusty steampunk with goggles and steam and coal and um, and although we have lots of in, uh, inventions, we've gone for a much more of a kind of a modern, sleek, um, smooth, kind of strong colours kind of style, which is mm. which is not traditional steampunk at all. And um, yeah, so the, the visual reference in a way is is Minority Report. Actually, Minority Report like is a vision of the future which makes sense to us in kind of the year 2000 because it, it's sort of the same but it's a bit sleeker mm -hmm. and this is like minority report but for victorians <laughs> because it's because like, this the style we've kind of drawn inspiration from is art deco which is kind of 1930s and given that it's set at the kind of turn of the century or 1872 um yeah, that kind of makes it feel futuristic um, mm. from their point of view, but also gives it that kind of modern um, style for players today. Yeah. Very cool. We thought about this rather too much, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you, you thought about it just enough. That's This is awesome. Um, now, we've talked a lot about kind of the, the background of the story, but uh, for somebody that has never played sorcery or out there or anything kind of like this what is 80 days like how do how does it play as a game okay so um 80 days is an interactive narrative crossed with a map based race game and what that means is you plot your course across a 3d globe uh moving in real time taking journeys from city to city and choosing which one you want to take balancing what luggage you've got, how much money you've got, how your characters are feeling and their health, because some journeys are more exhausting than others, mm. and trying to get around the world before the clock runs out. Or, or do as well as you can, get as fast as you can. Uh, but uh, in every city that you visit, you can either just move straight on or you can take a bit of time to explore. And if you explore, this will launch a bespoke bit of written interactive narrative where you can meet characters and learn clues that will help you on your adventure or perhaps have a disaster and, a, and something will go wrong. And then on each of the journeys, there's a bespoke story there as well that you can get involved with and different outcomes can happen on those journeys depending on what you do and who you meet and how things go. So it's an interactive story, but it's kind of very tightly meshed into the, the racing around the world that you do. And the last thing with that, I guess it's important to mention, is that when you're racing, you really are racing because it's network connected. So every single player of the app is is visible on your oh. screen in real time. So they're all moving and taking their decisions and running on the same clock that you're running on. So if you decide to take four hours in Munich to have a look around and maybe discover a clue, you might notice that the other guy who was in Munich has set off for Vienna straight away and is now ahead of you. But perhaps you'll find something which lets you get ahead of him in return. And yeah, looking on the globe, you can see what's happening to people now as they play, what kind of adventures have they had, what disasters they had, what discoveries have they had. And you can use that to pick up hints for your own journey or just browse it and see see what's going on. So it's kind of reflected in two different ways. There's um, this kind of live feed of events that are happening to all the players around the world. So it's almost like continually hitting refresh on Twitter to see um, the things that <laughs> you're doing in the game on the surface of the globe. Um, so you'll see these things popping up as they happen. You know, sort of captured in Wadi Halfa or yeah. lost a shoe in the Sudan or yeah. sped up an airship over the Atlantic. Yeah. And then the other thing we have is a kind of a pack of 
players who are racing against you who are who are kind of shown they're kind of ghosts in the sense of a racing game in that um, they're recorded players um, who are at the same point in time that you're at so that you can directly race against them and so that will just be a kind of a selection that we've that the kind of the server's chosen to for you to play along with um, who will be kind of um, nicely spread out so that you can see um, uh, all the different routes that are available that maybe you didn't take and you can kind of compare and contrast those different types of players and those routes. Um, so it's kind of like a shard on a multiplayer, on a yeah. massively multiplayer game. You, you, yeah. you get a shard and then you have a race within that shard. Because yeah. um, if we showed absolutely everybody racing around yeah. the world all the time, then the map would yeah, be a bit which, slow. <laughs> <laughs> It might start to chug. Um, so, so is is there any sort of advantage to getting there ahead of the people that you're that you're kind of in the same instance with? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, that's how you win. Okay. Um, I suppose if you don't care about winning, then no. <laughs> I mean, um, we did want it to be quite a lightweight multiplayer. Like there isn't mm. any direct interaction with the other players. So in that sense, it is exactly like. Uh, you know, a racing game. Um, so they are ghosts, um, and you beat their time. And but you might be able to learn things um, that can help you in the future. If they're one day ahead of you, then they they might essentially give you clues because uh, you can see what they're doing and whether whether they might be held up. Yeah. So that's quite that's quite a nice balance to it actually, because mm. if, you, if you're leading the pack, you're exploring up completely uncharted territory, mm. and if you're behind, you're getting lots of clues from the people who are ahead, mm. which will hopefully help you catch up. And like any good strategy game, it's replayable. So uh, if you see someone who who's found a particularly fast route, then you can bear it in mind and try it next time. But the so game world kind of like is like taking the best racing line, I guess. Yeah. Though the game world is slightly randomised and slightly so every game is a little bit different. Mm. So you can't kind of you can't replay and exactly optimise it every time there's a little bit yeah. of luck. We yeah. kind of wanted that sense of a of a board game. You know, when a yeah. bunch of people get together and they sit around a board game and they play a game and you have that sense of it being quite a connected experience and kind of it's quite sort of there's that nice competitive element. It's it's quite light, but it's still it's still kind of an important part mm. of it. But to do that in a way where you still have this deep, immersive, interactive story that you can read and really get involved with. And so it's it's kind of a marriage of two very different things. It's, mm -hmm. it's the board game, mm -hmm. and it's this sort of reading-based, um, very, very interactive story with choices every few paragraphs. You know, and all remembered, they're all stacked up. And I don't think there's anything which is quite like it, actually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Out There is a very... Out There is a great game with loads of choices, and it's a very solo experience, so it's... Mm -hmm. It's um, yeah. It's like out there mixed with Mario Kart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't wait until I start seeing players like trash talk each other on Twitter with you know like oh I got to Vienna in five days in and you know and, and kind of share not only discoveries but kind of, you know because I think that's 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 one of the most exciting things I think um, for us is that there's there's so much not only to do but so many ways to do it um, mm -hmm. and it's going to be really interesting to see you know how people choose to play the game because i think it is it is the sort of game that you can play in this extremely strategic way but you can also mm -hmm. kind of choose to ignore that and play it in a very kind of exploratory yeah. narrative way as well so yeah and we don't we don't from a strategy point of view we don't know how long the fastest path is <laughs> yeah. actually. oh that's actually one of the things i'm really excited to see is, is <laughs> within a few hours the internet will tell us what the fastest route is <laughs> <laughs> 
like, and it, it could be potentially very, very fast indeed because there's a lot of Easter eggs in the yeah. game. There's a lot of if you go here and collect this and meet this guy and then go there and then do this thing and then meet this woman here, then you can unlock a journey which will hop you really quite far, very fast. Hmm. So if you can chain a couple of those together, hmm. I don't know, it might be possible to do it in like 20 days, 18, if you're really, really nailing it. Wow. But don't know. I, uh, I haven't checked. I haven't had time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so earlier you mentioned, um, you know, the multiplayer is kind of real time. Is that is that real time as far as the game is concerned uh, in the, the time that it's measuring, or is that real time in reality is so, the, yeah. the speed it, it, at which it, I do things on the the iPad does that affect how quickly I get there or is it you know the four yeah. days that it takes in the game to get from location to location it, it, of the four hours or, or it's really like. difficult to describe the real time because um, if you say like look it's 80 days around the world in real time then people are going to think what does this app take 80 days, <laughs> or four days? Um, and you believe it or not we did consider that at one point yeah. and then realized that was crazy so <laughs> The idea is more that once you start the game, the clock starts to run, and the clock doesn't stop. Okay, so even when I stop playing, the clock in the game is still going? Is that... Oh, no, no, no. Okay. It doesn't stop while you're playing, no. Okay. No, it's not, not one of those games where you have it ticking around in the background. It's not like Candy Box. Um, except when you're reading. When you're reading content, then we pause the when we pause the clock. So you, you don't have to speed read. We, we don't want people to kind of... Yeah, we know, kind of either slow down or stop time when we don't want to rush you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Gotcha. But um, So when you visit a city, though, if you go to the market and browse around the items, the clock is ticking in the background. And if you take too long there, you might miss the connection. You might miss the train um, because you're too busy shopping. And you know who hasn't done that at mm. some point in their life? Um, and then when you're on the journeys, those take a certain amount of time, and so you, you'll be sort of doing things and occupying your time on those journeys as the clock ticks over, and other people around the world will be moving on that same centralized clock. Gotcha. Um, so I guess it it's not exactly real time. It's more kind of it's more fictional time. It's it's unreal yeah. time. It um, is basically accelerated real time. Um, so. Like in in this in cities, for example, it takes thirty seconds for an for an in-game hour to pass, uh, which means that kind of when you you've got an hour to make a connection, that does that does mean you have to actually get a move on and yeah, make sure you make a decision quite quickly about which connection to make. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it does mean that if you go and boil the kettle, you can accidentally end up sleeping rough on yeah. the streets of, <laughs> yeah. on the streets of the city because because you forgot didn't, to didn't find a hotel. Got to find a hotel. Um, <laughs> Which I quite like. I yeah, think it's, it's a feature. Quite fun. <laughs> Every time I'm I'm testing and I go away and I come back, it says, you know, we woke up on the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Monsieur Fogg was very annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he was. And then Monsieur Fogg was increasingly annoyed because we have um, our procedural text then does kick in. Um, <laughs> awesome. My, my brain's kind of drawing a blank because I've just been paying attention to what you were saying and I completely forgot to think of a next question to, <laughs> to ask you. So, I mean, I think that what's really exciting for us is that, you know, we, we did Sorcery and Sorcery uh, was quite a risky project for us when we started it because we, you know, we took it to America, we took it to PAX East and met a lot of a lot of game journalists who said, well, I've never heard of this. I've never heard of this thing. What is this game book? Is it like Lone Wolf? And we were like, yeah, okay, all right. So no one's heard of Sorcery, right? Um, and 
people have done adaptations of game books before and sorcery was a game book but they we didn't really do an adaptation of a game book we we put an interactive story onto a map and let people explore that map and gather story as they went but it was quite a tightly authored experience it was very kind of channeled and focused and there were there's lots of ways to do it but every single one has kind of been handcrafted and handwritten mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people really loved it and really enjoyed it and felt that it was really freeing kind of re- really deep and rich and i think that was because the map meant you could get a sense of really exploring this story that you were in so 80 days is kind of a quantum leap beyond that in that you were exploring this this 3D globe that's covered in routes and maps and places to go, but we actually don't know exactly what the narratives that you can form are. We know what all the pieces are, and we know that they can connect together, but it's totally possible that someone will pick up the game and play it in an order and a route which I've never seen, which none of us Mm. have ever seen or predicted, but we have a very powerful engine underneath for the text which can keep track of specific things and also general things as well. So it can create a sensible narrative even if we don't exactly know what you've done or how you got to a certain point. It can it can sort of stitch it together. So how how does that work without going into too many technical details? Uh, because that that's one of the problems that a lot of games run into when you try to have a lot of branching paths is eventually you're going to come up with some combination where you know there's a a revelation later in the game that's based on information that you should have learned earlier in the game that didn't actually happen in your version of the playthrough so how does all of that work together and and what is it like writing kind of all of these segments that you know can be accessible in you know various different uh paths and routes and combinations let me let me answer the question about how um, about how we how we can do it when when branching narrative can be a problem, and then I'll, I'll let Meg answer what it's like to write for. <laughs> All right. But uh, you know, a lot of people are experimenting with branching narrative, but they they tend not to really trust themselves to go for it full throttle. You know, like Telltale have got this reputation for doing branching, and they do but they don't have very many branches and they're really in control of what they are and they know exactly where they're going and they're, they're very, very carefully sculpting it. Um, and I they guess, have to I guess that. it's partly, yeah, because, you know, they're, they're a high-budget game with lots of animations and, yeah, and you, you literally can't produce that much content or vary it on the level that we yeah, vary it I on mean, kind of second-to-second... Second. Telltale voice record every line of dialogue that every character says, so... You know, the bottom line for us is we work with text because text is incredibly flexible. So if we want to change what happens in the story, we can do that very easily. We just, you know, if we have to produce 20 versions of a paragraph or, or 20 versions of a bit of a paragraph that gets stitched together, that's actually very quick to we, do. We vary sentences on a word-by-word basis. Yeah, and we, um, so we, we really do have 10,000, the last time I ran the compiler, we have 10,000 choices in the game. We have about 450,000 words of content. Um, and it all just gets kind of smudged together in this big whoop. Um <laughs> And we can do that because we don't need to get an actor to read out every possible permutation. Um, and the second thing with you asked was how do you how do you prevent that thing of a revelation in the game being based on something you didn't see earlier on? And our answer to that is beautifully obnoxious, which is if you missed it, you missed it. Um, <laughs> 
it's a branching narrative. If it branches, it branched. If you miss something, you you missed it. But we remember that you miss it. So yeah. <laughs> we do make the story make sense because we we remember every single action that you do. Yeah, exactly. So um, we remember everything you do. We remember everything you've seen, and we can call that up and vary what we're doing based on that. So the design problem is simply you'll just have a different story. You'll have a different experience, and at the end of it, you might be in a worse or better state, or in sorcery, you might actually get killed and have to rewind and pop back and and you know start from somewhere else. So you can't get stuck exactly, but it can feel like your narrative is being closed off because of stuff you've missed. Hmm. 80 days is different though because we, we don't have a fail condition. You can just take more time. Uh, but that leads into the other question which is what is it like to write for that? Um, Meg, what's it yeah. like to write for that? <laughs> I, I mean, I think, okay, so I think there's there's kind of multiple parts to this, and I think that the first bit is that in some ways you kind of have to let go of the notion of, of the kind of really traditional notion of, of being able to tell one person one kind of perfect uh, three-act story and being able to control all of the beats within it. I mean, I think in 80 days, trying to do that in 80 days is kind of a, fool, a fool's game. It's, it's never really going to happen. And instead, you kind of have to approach it. And I think that's partly what we did, um, partly with kind of the bits of procedural dialogue, but also being able to remember uh, certain variables, like uh, kind of your your emotional tension with fog or your skill or cap capability at things. You can actually, you can kind of, instead of trying to, to tell a whole story, I think we kind of focused on telling really much more focused little stories so each each city is kind of a story in of itself um and each each day of each journey kind of builds builds its own story and and you know there's an extent to which like certain themes emerge in certain regions but it's it's quite it's quite flexible and lightweight um so there's there's that side of things sorry that's kind of that's kind of the way Vern wrote actually in in, in both 80 Days and and also uh, his other novels like 20,000 Leaves Under the Sea, they are a series of kind of connected short stories in a way because it's 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 like a travel journal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are and they're you know and they're they're kind of whole incidents and they're uh, they're interesting and and complete in of themselves. But then, kind of because we I think can never really leave well enough alone. Um, there's there's a huge amount of, of kind of reference and callback and and elaboration that happens in 80 days and and a lot of that some of that happens procedurally but but a lot of it happens in this in this very kind of loving and bespoke and, and hand coded way um, so I mean one of the things that that we have been doing is, is kind of looking at the entire world and, and going through all of the incidents and kind of going how uh, wait okay so so you have you you nearly drown here are there any other for instance, places where you nearly might have drowned before, um, you know, and and giving kind of and and actually mentioning it because we have because you know we're able to remember all of the choices you make. I think there's a real pleasure to kind of uh, it, there's a real pleasure when we reflect back to you that that yes we have been kind of paying attention to the choices that you've made and they haven't just kind of gone off into the ether. Uh, and because text is so flexible. Um, we we can do that, and we can do that in a, in a way that feels really unprecedented. I think. Um, yeah, though though leap in John and Joe, because I mean I think there's 
because I think there is a, there's a what's I think the, the the mix of kind of procedural stuff and bespoke stuff is, is really what gives 80 days that feeling I think the, the, the thing I've always found talking to people about the sorcery and, and also 80 days is that people have this idea of what a page of text is um, which yeah. goes back to the choose your own adventure thing I suppose people sort of say you know okay I, I've seen people play sorcery and then a line of sorcery will say kind of the old man stares at you with horror it's, it's probably because of the fact that you know you, you cursed him five choices ago and look up and go god how did they do that in a paper book and you look at them and say they didn't do that in a paper book you can't do that in a paper book <laughs> but, obviously and they go but oh do you mean like if i'd done something different it would say something else you go yeah, yeah. you know like when you talk to people and you say something different and then they say something different in part it's like that and they go how does it do that? You go, well, it's a computer. <laughs> like, it's thinking all the time. Um, but there's a sort of expectation we have from of what text is like. Text is sort of solid, and text is really not solid. Mm-hmm. Um, best example of that I've seen recently, we, we in, um, to keep in touch with everybody, because Meg works in London, we work in Cambridge, and uh, we have various other people. We work with a guy in America on the project. We have a, a chat program that we have running sort of in the corner of the screen the whole time and it has a feature that I've never seen in a chat program before which is if you make a typo then on your next entry you can type a little code which will fix the typo of what you've already typed Um, so what that means is you can type something and then start changing the words that have already gone and when you're talking to someone their words can start flashing and changing and it's like history is being changed and it unsettles me every time (laughs) because text is not supposed to do that like um, but then you think, hang on, why is, why is it that when I send an email, there's an undo send button in, in Gmail, and I love it, it's brilliant. And all it does is not send it for three seconds while you go, oh crap, what did I just say? Mm-hmm. Um, but why isn't there a button that lets me edit an email I've already sent? Like, just edit it, so when the person sees it, they see the most recent person. That's a really obvious feature, that would be so useful. Mm-hmm. But somehow when I write an email and press send, that's it, I've committed it. I've put it on a piece of paper and I've printed it. I've carved it into a stone tablet. It's, mm-hmm. We have this in our heads as being normal, and it's a bit odd, really, because it's not. It's just data. It's all just floaty data. Yeah, it's like on Twitter. You would think there'd be the ability to go in and edit a tweet, because yeah, I forgot the word like, is. I don't know how many times I forget the word is, and I'm like, ah, oh, crap. Yeah, but yeah, no, I, yeah. I can't edit that, because it's only on a computer. I can't edit it. <laughs> 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 So imagine the arguments when you have to actually take into account versioning and revision history on Twitter. I mean, it's it's acrimonious <laughs> enough. <laughs> well, in this version, you said this, but in that version, you said that. Yeah. Which is it? I love, I love the idea that modern versions of Twitter would have a conflict resolution button. <laughs> Senior level engineers to go, now, he meant is and she meant it, so I'm going to go... <laughs> Yeah. Very cool. Now, um, one of the the big reasons that you're able to do all of this is because of the the software that you guys use, and, and we've talked you know a little bit about what's beneath that. Uh, but um, Inkle is also available for, or uh, Inkle Writer is available for anyone to use. Um, how does that work, really? Like, what is what is the the program itself? And I mean. It's 
it's free. That seems kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, so we've got um we've got we what we call Incorporated that it covers two different pieces of software. There's the, the kind of online um, free web tool that we created a couple of years ago um, uh, that we kind of built for fun almost to uh, see, because we wanted to create a community around creating uh, interactive stories and we wanted to see what other people would create with it, but um, that's not actually the software that we, we use internally, although they, they share a lot of the same concepts. Mm. Um, the one that we use internally is Kind of a lot more technical in the in the sense that it's um, it's more just more like um, editing real code. Although it, although it is a markup language in that it's it's uh, it's kind of text based. So you you it, and it's very writer friendly. So you can write a paragraph and then you just use a a little symbol to say um, to say this this diverts to this paragraph or. Uh, or you have a little asterisk to to create an option, for example. Um, mm -hmm. Except there's a lot more complexity than that, and it is a it is a, a fully fledged programming language underneath. Okay. Uh, that's very I think, powerful. I think you could probably write a, a chess computer in it. Yeah. I think it would be yeah. tough, but I think you could do it. Yeah. Um, and then it would play chess and like yeah. describe what, how how it was taking you down. On yeah. <laughs> I think. Uh, uh, Computer scientists call a programming language Turing complete, as in Alan Turing. If if it kind of satisfies all the basic conditions uh, that a computer has to satisfy um, to be a computer, and I'm pretty sure it satisfies all those con conditions. So mm. you can. It is a programming language, but it's a very writer-friendly one. It's sort of built quite organically. I think when we started designing it, the the key feature that that I I needed was the ability to write interactive content without having to put a quote mark at the start of every paragraph yeah, that I yeah, write, because yeah. almost all programming languages force you to put quotes around, around strings I, of yeah, text. Yeah, I, I guess the, the biggest difference is that it's more code within writing as mm. opposed to writing within code. Which sounds really petty, but actually when you're it writing 500,000 words of content, it makes an enormous amount of difference. Yeah. I'm really, it's weird that no one else has, yeah. I, I haven't seen anyone else do that. Mm. Yeah, but then the, so then that, that script is processed by a compiler, and then we have a, an, an engine which Joe wrote, which sort of processes it to be used by an app, and then that's the engine that we've reused in mm. pretty much everything yeah, we've made. We built upon it and added features and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's, it's it's amazing how kind of that code really hasn't changed much since mm. about three years ago. It's a it's a lovely base layer though. Cause yeah. I mean, we we always talk about what you know what the next game will be, especially towards the the, the dog days of the project. <laughs> um, and having that in your back pocket means we kind of go, oh well, you know, maybe next time we'll do something that's really not got any text in it at all, but maybe it just has some characters and then it has dialogue. Do we have a system for doing really interactive dialogue? Oh, yes, we do, yeah. <laughs> actually. We've got a system for incredibly yeah, interactive it's dialogue. It's amazing how general purpose it is, given you know we, we created it for one project right at the start. Yeah. It's turned out yeah. that every project we've done so far has used it. So. Yeah. Yes, uh, I, I should say from a, from a kind of completely not, um, not developer perspective, it, it's been um, just incredibly uh, easy and, and flexible to, to use and, and not at all is I mean I think you know I, I think I, I must have looked at at, um, at you two showing me um, some ink files <laughs> and kind of gone oh god this is I'm never going to get a hold of this but 
kind of within a couple of weeks it, it just um, I think there's something really intuitive about it um, and it's been a really kind of enjoyable experience working with it and I think I think you, you kind of hit upon what's really exciting about it is that it's a it's a it's a writer's um, language uh, mm. rather than a, a, a coder's mm. language that allows you to write within it um, mm. I think that probably comes down to the fact that we're all kind of very cross-disciplinary. I mean, I'm yeah. kind of coder artist, John's kind of coder writer, uh, designer, mm. and Meg, you're kind of almost writer coder as well. Actually, because you're Meg's very much been writer producer on this project because she yeah. keeps emailing me and saying, can we have a list please? Can we have a deadline? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Everything's so much better with the list. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the really nice, you know, the nice thing for, for me about kind of having because Meg, you're, you're you're pretty much the first writer to really get stuck in and use what ink can do. We worked with um, an author called Dave Morris on our Frankenstein project, and he used the kind of basic features of it. He had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do, and he didn't really push the technological end of it particularly hard at all, which is good because at the time the engine probably didn't work properly. Um, whereas, kind of as Meg's been writing, you know, occasionally I get an email saying, oh, I just I want to do it so that if you do this and go here, but if you go there and do that, then this will show, but otherwise this will show, but otherwise this, these two things will show, but neither of those two things at the same time. Is that possible? And the answer is always, yeah, you just do this. You know, there isn't really a, a logical setup or a problem, because as Joe says, it's Turing complete. You know, you can, you can throw whatever crisis you want to at it, and there will be a way to code it. Um, and that's been really nice. So we, we've got some quite clever little bits of code going on in there occasionally. Mm. Just I'm, I'm, I'm occasionally horrified of <laughs> like, just how much programming there is in it. Yeah. So like, is, is my engine really doing that? Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a proper coder, I think you take a look at what we do. Again. No, I, well, I don't even mean in a, in a bad way. I just, I just look at files that we always intended it to be a writing yeah, uh, yeah. format, and then I see just pure source code in there yeah. as well, and I go, wow, okay. Well, it was, the, the, the rabbit hole really opened with Sorcery 1. At the end of Sorcery 1, there's a maze where you fight this, this monster called the Manticore, and there's a solution to that maze, um, which is a, a fixed pattern of, of turnings that you should take to get to the end, which you can learn, or, or not learn, as you go through the story. But I didn't want there to be a solution that people could just share on the internet. So the maze is actually semi-procedurally generated and creates itself differently depending on the choices that you've made up to that point. Mm. Um, so if you tend to be someone who goes left more often, it flips itself to be a maze which needs you to go right more often in an attempt to try and kill you more frequently um, <laughs> and to stop you solving it by luck. And I don't think anybody noticed that it was doing it, but like, there's a map that's building itself on the fly in a writer-based programming language and then describing it to you. And then in the second sorcery game, I thought, well, I'll have to top that. So there's a room containing six AIs who play a gambling game, who pick out who to play based on how everybody plays and they try to maximize their, their winning. Nobody notices this stuff, of course. When you play it, there's just a bunch of dudes to play games against. Like, the fact that they're doing any thinking is completely irrelevant, but they are. Um, well, well, when it's doing it right, it, it should kind of be un unnoticed I, guess, I think yeah I guess that's it yeah, yeah exactly yeah like it is less static than it would otherwise be um don't know what I'm going to do for Sorcery 3 is there any sort of uh puzzle uh in 80 days that kind of tops that from Sorcery 2 um so the most mental bit of programming that we did in the scripting language for 80 days is Meg popped up at some point and said 
it'd be really good if you get into a fight somewhere. You know, like you know the fights that you do in sorcery with the procedurally generated text. And I said, Meg, that's a completely different system that's outside the scripting language. And she said, yeah, but wouldn't it be cool if you could do it inside the scripting language? <laughs> so um, there is a train you can get on, I think it's in America, where Monsieur Fogg will, you play the character of to his valet, will place a bet on you being able to beat a champion heavyweight boxer in a boxing match. Um, and then you have to box this guy. And it's a sort of loose approximation of the sorcery combat mechanic. It isn't quite the same. It doesn't have any pictures. Um, but that's quite nuts because that's got an AI running and a procedural <laughs> generation system running. Um, so that was quite hard. And, <laughs> and it's, it's also, it's really, in a, in a way it's quite silly because the boxer is quite hard to beat. So I could have just like had him just pummel you to the floor and I don't know anyone would be able to tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> you can beat him, I have done it. Um, I, I wish I could say it, I'm, I'm sorry for suggesting it, but I'm really, really not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's just, I was sitting there thinking as I wrote it, should I be making this like into a routine that we can just do anywhere so you could just have boxing matches with anyone around the world? <laughs> <laughs> when you're Let's sleeping not... rough outside, uh, outside cities, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Some, uh, some drunk comes up to you on the sleep and wants a boxing match. <laughs> <laughs> obeying, certain, obeying certain rules that apply to how boxing matches work. <laughs> In that particular city. In that particular city, yeah. <laughs> yeah in, in that culture, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. that, that's been really the, the hardest thing about the project is, as Joe said earlier, we are covering the entire world in terms of content, but also in terms of art. So every mm. city has a bespoke bit of art to go with it, and they're all individually placed and drawn and selected and researched. Um, everything in the game is a genuine... Every monument you see is a genuine monument from the time, from the culture, with a reason to be there. Um, you know, and then they're uniquely sort of colorized. The whole kind of look and feel is, is uh, it's like Art Deco posters, isn't mm, it? Art Deco travel posters, yeah. With a sort of color wash gradient, and that yeah. gradient depends on what time of day it is. Mm, and it depends what continent you're in as well. So, so kind of more jungle-rich environments will definitely look more greenish in the background. And then when you're traveling, well, well, in, when you start off in London, it's a kind of dull blue-grey. Which is a bit unfortunate, really. When you hit Beirut and it goes sort of red and burnt orange, that's yeah. just beautiful. Yeah. Obviously, London is, London is great. <laughs> the only place in the Oh, we could reuse it for Seattle, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> or if there's any bits where you're underwater. Um, so, and, you know, we're still, we're a couple of weeks out from release and we've got a, a few bugs to fix and a few little features to, to sort of round the edges of and we've got a lot of graphics to mm. get in get placed mm. get finalized get fixed um and then same for the characters we have a, a little conversation mechanic that you can talk to people when you're on trains and planes and buses and things and uh originally wrote to the artist and said oh we, we probably need 25 characters and then yep. to thought, hang on we need <laughs> men and women of say who are pilots guards mechanics you know, middle-class travellers, working-class travellers, male and female, and we need them to be white European, Nordic, Middle Eastern, sort of Greek Mediterranean, uh, Indian, Southeast Asian. Southeast Asian is a pretty large bracket, actually. Latin American, American, Native American, Afro-Caribbean. <laughs> African. African is a massive category. There's quite a lot of different kinds of African. Um, and we're like, okay, I've done a list. So I wrote to the artist and said, I've done a list. Uh, we need 360 pieces of art. <laughs> and 
we kind of need them in about a week. <laughs> and he shouted at me a little bit and then produced not 360, but quite a large number. I, and, I love the, uh, and the result there. They Amazing. are gorgeous. They're beautiful. Um, and he's, he's, you know, he's done it through a slightly kit part approach. It's very kind of sensibly done. It's very carefully you done. You can see a couple of them in our, on our Twitter feed, actually. We post yeah, a we keep posting them because we just love them so much. Um, yeah. So, in fact, I, I think probably... Um, our artist, I won't say his name, but I can't pronounce it properly. Haume. Yeah, either that or Jean. We're not quite sure. He's uh, he's Spanish. Catalan? Spanish. Spanish. Oh, he might be Catalan. Yeah. We, we should probably ask. Him. Oh, we probably yeah. should. Let's get him on. Um, but yeah, he's been absolutely fantastic. I think he's really the only person on the team who's really coped with the burgeoning scale of this project yeah, in a professional he's been fashion. Amazing. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Next to us, just sort of buckled under and cried a little bit. I think. <laughs> We made lists. That's what we did. Yes. <laughs> this is I where lists get you. I still haven't finished it, but anyway. Well, that all sounds utterly fantastic. I am really excited about this. It, it sounds really great. Um, but I don't really have any more questions about the game. Uh, the way we generally like to finish interviews is with a little questionnaire that all of you get to answer. Uh, and they're a little more personal, a little more opinionated things, like, uh, well, the first one is, who is your favorite video game protagonist? Oh, well. <laughs> and don't worry, they only get harder from here. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, of course, of course. It's, uh, it's going to be Shepard from, from Mass Effect. Oh, good answer. Nobody oh. has chosen that yet. Meg, oh. have you just basically chosen yourself? <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> but my my shepherd is slightly more badass and has a scar on her face. And like, oh, there you amazing. go. Completely different. So, so totally different. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never been able to choose shepherd as my answer for that because I did two very thought out playthroughs, and I don't think I could choose between which shepherd I played as. So I, mm. it would be a tie. So yeah, uh, I think my favorite character is probably Jade from Beyond Good and Evil. Mm. Uh, she's she's just really she's just awesome. I don't know, like she's just like an interesting character. She's she's a photographer and I don't know, she's she's just cool. Like she's not she's like the antithesis to like uh I don't know, the kind of butch uh, uh kind of God of War, Gears of War, Halo, that kind of thing. Halo of War. Halo <laughs> of War. <laughs> yeah, she just she's a lot of fun. I, I, I like that it was a kind of a slightly whimsical game, but also emotional and interesting, and yeah, just a great protagonist. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I, I really enjoyed Edward Kenway from The Last Assassin's Creed. He kept me playing for a lot longer than I otherwise would have, I think. He yeah, was, no, Assassin's he was actually Creed. really quite a nicely written character. The whole cast is actually quite good in yeah, Assassin's Creed. Yeah. It makes up the fact the gameplay is sort of <laughs> pretty frustrating. But I I think it's a it's a pretty dull choice, but I think I'd probably have to choose Nathan Drake, actually. Like for mm. all the protagonists that I've really enjoyed. Oh well, like, guy Guybrush Streetwood. Yeah, it's just a bit goofy respect, you know, you go back to it and it's a bit goofy, but, like, just 
Nathan Drake is just every time he does that oh god thing that Bruce Willis does and die hard the whole time <laughs> oh, I really have to do that I, I just enjoy it hugely and I know it, it's not very forward looking but he's not totally the, the when you were saying that Jade was the antithesis mm. of the butch macho stereotype I was mm. a bit like oh dear that's oh, exactly what I'm about to choose but he's not <laughs> he's, he's an interesting version of it in the same way that Harrison Ford plays Indiana exactly. Jones yeah, well exactly yeah. he's like Nathan Drake is like how you wish your dad was um, <laughs> Sorry, John, Dad, if you're listening. No, that's pretty, that's pretty cool, but he's, he, you know, but he, he's not shot anyone. Um, <laughs> See, I mean, I'm I'm totally fine with that. I just really wish that you could play the Claudia Black character as the protagonist yeah. instead. Like, that would be an amazing. That means you're absolutely right. I also wish there was a bit of branching narrative there because, like, every time Claudia Black turns up, I kind of want to do a bit of a romance thing. That would be really right. cool. Exactly. Um, and if it went wrong, that would be fine. But, uh, but it, it's it would bit... inevitably go wrong. I mean, you know, she's yeah. waiting for you. Exactly. But the only interaction that you can have as a player is you can pull your gun at her, and she'll go, "What do you pull? At... What are you pointing that thing at me?" And that's not romantic, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, flipping that on its head, who is your favorite antagonist? Who's your favorite bad guy? Oh, no, I know, I know. Um, in Shadow of the Colossus, there's that one with the wings. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Like, you, it's be I mean, it's a beautifully designed game. Like, it has, like, two mechanics, and one of them is, like, cling on, like, Cling on like fuck, and you press this button to cling on like fuck as your guy is just being thrashed around the place. Um, sorry, I hope your podcast isn't a swear word for anyone. <laughs> no, it's it's I'm, fine. I'm just really enthusiastic about Shadow of the Colossus. But then there's this guy who he's like he flies and he's got flappy wings, and you're clinging onto his wings, and so the wings are throwing you about the place, and it's totally organic, but it's sort of a physics puzzle, and it's just built into the world. It's just brilliant. It's just it's superb. It's just a superb piece of, of of level design and mechanics design. Absolutely awesome. Yeah, uh, I think I've got Monkey Island on the brain now. The ghost pirate LeChuck is awesome, but I also like uh, what's his uh, the, the, his first hand man from uh, Monkey Island Two, the guy who like from right at the beginning of the game he like un empties you upside down and all your gold falls out of your pockets. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. He's just a he's just a bully, but he's he's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, choice as well. So. He's, a, he's a very good choice. Um, wow, well, I think mine is going to be like maybe a really embarrassing choice, but possibly like the first video game protagonist I can remember scaring the crap out of me, which was um, like the snake snake Jafar in the Aladdin game Ooh. for the Super <laughs> Nintendo. He he frightened the hell out of five year old me. Utterly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to hand the controller over to my dad at that point and make him battle Snake Jafar and also inevitably die because my dad wasn't all that good at video games. But sorry, Dad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that's uh, that's that's mine. Very good. Transforming Snake Jafar. <laughs> um, so, are there any themes or tropes or just elements of video games today that you really wish would just go away and die and not be a part of of video games anymore? Can I just say most of them, or...? <laughs> yeah, no, a specific one. <laughs> yeah. The one that irks you the most. Oh. Um, the white dude goes into native culture and saves the day. <laughs> okay. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of, I mean, it's a pretty blanket one. <laughs> 
a lot of video games. So. Sure. Sure. Um, for me, shooting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's easy to come up with a lot of general ones like that. It's true. I mean, just just shooty games. Just yeah. shooting in general. Like L.A. Noir is a game about a procedural police detective, and I was really interested to play it. Oh, and there's some shooting. Yeah. Like, Uncharted is a game about exploring things and jumping around, and there's some shooting. No, no, it's you got that the other way around. Uncharted is about shooting, and it pretends <laughs> to be about adventure and other stuff. Sorry, I, I, I have a... I, you I have a chip on my shoulder against Uncharted. I'm sorry. I'll, yeah. I'll yeah, okay. I mean, in, in, a, in a way, I don't have a problem with shooting games in general. It's just there's too many of them. It's like if the film industry was only composed of Rambo and Rambo clones. I mean, it's it's fun to go and see once, but mm -hmm. like, there's just too many of them. Um, but uh, I guess to stand outside of the kind of the AAA um, hosted games, I guess I've got to be in my bonnet about uh, indie games that intentionally just look retro, like kind of, uh, I, I just get annoyed by all, all of the pixelated art uh, everywhere, and that probably annoys a lot of people because there's a lot of games that have it, and people are very nostalgic for that kind of thing, but mm -hmm. I, I'm just a bit bored of it. Oh yeah, this is your this is your one not cool opinion, isn't it? Yeah, we're not allowed to say in public. <laughs> in like pixel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's. Uh, I, I think that that's a really good one. It's. I saw some posts uh, recently that it was saying it's like, you know, this is the is a game that was inspired by kind of pixel art, and it's this really reductive, almost you can't even tell what's happening on screen version of pixel art. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and then it had a screenshot from Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. And it's like, this is what people are inspired by. This is, like, way more artistic than just a couple of pixels representing yeah, exactly. a character. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's spot on. So I'm, I'm going to agree with it, even though it's not cool. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. Uh, this one is the only one that's really not video game related at all. Uh, what would be your favorite Jules Verne novel besides Around the World in 80 Days? You can't use that one. Ooh. I'll I'll go first because I, I know my answer to this one already, and it's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Okay. Um, it's just, it's a really tight concept, and it's a really cool idea, and I first tried to read it when I think I was about eight, and I found it boring, and then I came mm -hmm. back to it when I was like 12 or something, and it just gripped me from beginning to end, like, it's got that kind of adventure thing, it's kind of underground, and it's, it, no, it's brilliant, I loved it, I loved every minute of it. I kind of want, in a way, I want to do a sequel to 80 Days, in which you can journey to the center of the earth and do the same thing but mm. going to the center of the earth yeah um, which would be kind of totally the opposite though because it would all be under the center of the earth so it would all look exactly the same <laughs> <laughs> there wouldn't be any indigenous people at all um and well so, don't don't no spoilers because i'm yet to read that one okay, I, well, I got a vintage folio folio society edition for my birthday i'm looking forward to digging into that uh I guess my my other favourite would be Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, uh, with the caveat that there are a lot of marine biology <laughs> scientific descriptions of fish. Um, but but it's just another it's another great it's kind of really similar to Eighty Days in the sense that it's kind of uh, it's it is like a travel journal of all the things they get get up to on a submarine. <laughs> Um, all around the world, and you know they find Atlantis and everything. It's just, it's just really good fun. 
yeah, I've, I've got to agree with the, with 20,000 Leagues as well. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think it's, it's this really fun narrative and it's also, it's kind of like 80 Days, which is kind of about Empire. It's about Empire, but it's a bit more kind of openly critical and, and Nemo is this really mysterious um, and mm-hmm. intriguing figure and, and you get the you get the feeling that, that you're, it, he's a character that you're not necessarily meant to kind of completely understand, but his mm-hmm. motivations are just so, I mean, they're just so fascinating and you can you can kind of, I think, you know, two people can, or 20 people could read the book and, and kind of completely disagree about Nemo and, and all be right. Um, and that's really, really exciting. So. Yeah. I, I feel like it's it's a really great example of Verne doing a great example, uh, great example of kind of science fiction ahead of his time as well. The way he writes about um, uh, the Nautilus and it's just, it is it does feel like you know uh, the description of the Starship Enterprise a hundred years ago. It's yeah. it's just great. Yeah. And, um, and I love the detail. It just feels so real the way he describes it. Yeah. So we'll have to see if anyone manages to find Captain Nemo in 80 days, because he's there. Mm. He's under the ocean, but you have to find him. Very nice. Um, Okay, so next question. You guys are obviously already living the dream. You're making video games, you're writing, you're doing awesome stuff. But if you could do, if you could try any other profession, what would you want to give a shot? Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) I told you, they get harder. This is this is that's really tough, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, the thing I tried to do before I became a video game designer was just be a novelist, and uh, novels are quite hard, as it turns out. And I was only average at it, but I think what I, if I'm allowed to choose writing, which is actually quite similar to what I do a lot of the time <laughs> in this job, I would love to write. I'd love to write radio dramas. Like radio plays are really cool. I'd like to do that. Otherwise, private detective. <laughs> nice. I think I would probably, if computers didn't exist, I'd probably be an architect. Uh, I guess the problem, the big problem with architecture is that uh, there's a lot of boring jobs in architecture, and I think I would only enjoy it if you get if you got to conceive of like awesome buildings rather than house extensions. Mm. <laughs> I was just saying. <laughs> Like architect in the future, in the awesome, like totally not, you know, resource hungry future where we're building amazing things. Oh, yeah. It's a good choice. Right. Uh, I, I think I'd probably just end up being like a perpetual student. Like I'd probably be on my like, I'd probably still be trying to get a PhD and my supervisor would just be like, just go away. Um, so I think I'd, I'd kind of be trying to do the same thing, but just worse. <laughs> what would you do your PhD in? Sorry? What would you do your PhD in? Oh, um, yeah. So if if I had to, maybe 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 like politics, maybe history instead of English lit, which is what what I did. In, yeah, I think the alternate version. I mean, I'd love to imagine myself as like as having done like archaeology and and anthropology and kind of you know like kneeling in in some kind of ruins and being being very Indiana Jones but I really I don't think I'd like the camping so <laughs> I think well, I've got a bit realistic here the problem with archaeology is you kneel in the ruins and then you stand up and you say well there's nothing here it's all ruins <laughs> like there's some small rocks like you're never gonna find kind of 
you're never going to find a wormhole to the past or a magic <laughs> box that has snakes in it or you know any of that stuff. Indiana Jones is all lies. <laughs> <laughs> don't take don't don't take my dreams from me, John. Honestly, they're all <laughs> it's just like you know there's a bit in 80 days where you can go to Machu Picchu and um, I've spent a bit of time thinking oh well maybe you can find something at Machu Picchu which will really help you get around the world in 80 days <laughs> hang on a minute that's a stupid sentence <laughs> <laughs> you found a really really large goat oh <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's so basically you find something awesome and then you know you you have a prestigious like gallery opening nearby at the local you know history museum and you know and then you publish a paper and it's all very nice and then you settle down with a nice girl you know <laughs> <laughs> pretty much it. Uh, my brain is stuck on goats please tell me at some point you guys are going to make an around the world in 80 days expansion for goat simulator uh... <laughs> <laughs> Or the other way around. You're working with them to uh, create a goat simulator expansion for Around the World in 80 Days. Free uh, thought. Take it and run with it. Uh, <laughs> I love the idea that goat simulator might a whole new publishing platform for people. <laughs> this is Thomas Was Alone for Goat Simulator. <laughs> oh, I'm excited now. Um, <laughs> Alright, so next question, second to last question. Uh, and this is actually the first time I've asked this question. Recently, I've gone back to re-listening to a uh, a podcast series called The Brainy Gamer. And uh, the host of that doesn't really do a lot of them anymore. And he, he used to ask this question. And since nobody's asking it anymore, I'm, I'm throwing it in here. And I'm, I'm going to start asking it. Uh, the, it's the idea of you have one last video game to play. Uh, it's not necessarily your favorite video game, but if you could only play one more video game... What video game would you play? Ooh. You did end on a hard question. Oh, no, it's not the end. There's one more, and it's worse. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so it would have to be one which you genuinely expect is not going to prove to be disappointing in the way that a lot of people yeah, are disappointing. Yeah. Um, I know, but this is, it can, it's something you've already... I, I think, okay, for me, I'll, I will go at it. Civilization 2, probably. Oh, okay. Because, you know, there's, like, you know you know what you're getting. It's a sort of game that you can just keep playing forever, as, as I well know. Um, because now <laughs> Steam tells me how long I've played games for. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is, it's, the, it's the sort of desert island. It's my de desert island video game, I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah, now, now top that, you two. Yeah, no, I'm not. I, when I think about video games, I think about narrative games with beginning, middle, and end. I always do. Like, yeah. um, it's not that I haven't yeah. played that kind of, because I have, but but somehow I don't think of them. They don't jump to mind. Um, yeah, I guess for me, uh, I I sort of I create these really complicated narratives. I mean, it's why I'm really bad at Civilization, despite playing it, <laughs> because all of my civilizations are lovely places to live because. You know, rather than really successful um, <laughs> empires, <laughs> because I'm like, oh, but I have all these scientists, and and but they they have all these children, and there's only a high school. I mean, I need a university so that these these scientist kids aren't less educated than their parents. <laughs> 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 and then my neighbors nuke me, so um, you know, 
You've you've inspired me now. I think I want to play Civil. Uh, I want to play uh, SimCity 2000 again. Ah, oh, no, that was a game. That was a game. Game, yeah. Because actually, I haven't played it since I was a kid, and probably I might be a lot more successful at it now. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember building really unpractical subway lines that went all over the place (laughs) on the underground editing. It's quite tame by that. Um, I don't know, I'm just going to have to pick something. Uh, Oh, yeah, you know what? Actually, Dark Souls. I've never played Dark Souls. I think I would hate it to guts. I I think I would would find it far (laughs) too frustrating. But if I only had one game to play, that might be enough time to actually get into Dark Souls. And people who rave about it really do rave about it. And there seems to be something pretty and solid about it. So I think that would be my choice. Mm. Mostly masochistic choice, though. It's, I mean, I wouldn't enjoy it, but it, I would get really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if, you know, you said it was a desert island video game, right? And being on a desert island is quite a masochistic fantasy, isn't it? <laughs> so, it's true. Um, you could but... you could take Ninja Gaiden and just kind of never never stop playing it because <laughs> you could never possibly complete it. <laughs> oh, you 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 were the ones that uh, came up with the Desert Island situation. I just said it was the last video game you get to play. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I in my case then a, a version of Dark Souls where when I die, I die. <laughs> <laughs> Because living without video games is just not a life worth living. It's just a way of dealing with cancer. That's harsh. Uh, Alright, was SimCity 2000 your choice? Um, Yeah. Okay. Alright, so now we're at the last question. So, when you come to the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom, and Toad is there with the book of the deeds of your life, what do you want him to say to you? <laughs> oh God! Uh, um, surprisingly, surprisingly morbid. I wasn't expecting to muse this much on my own mortality. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, he t- he'll say to you, "You never should have gone to that desert island." <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what are you kidding? You wanted to die when you died in Dark Souls? You realize you only had five minutes to live at that point, right? You, you do know you die on the loading screen, right? Um, yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways, I think I'd, I think it would be really nice to, to kind of come to that point, uh, having lived, lived one's life well enough that it, it really didn't matter what... Uh, what someone kind of one sentence sum up of it was, hmm. uh, which is sort of a boring, boring answer, but uh, no, that's I actually really like that answer. Well done, Meg. You broke the question. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, we we had somebody that did break the question uh, a couple of weeks ago. The response was, well, you bite into Toad and realize that it was all a mushroom-induced fever dream. And I was just like, I, I was speechless. I was like, you you broke the question. Yeah. <laughs> you can't use that one, by the way. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, if you want a serious answer, it's it's the classic, did no harm, right? That's that's what you want someone to say when you do, at the end of your life. He did no harm. He was all right. Um, that will do. 
if you want a city answer. Why? Why is it a toad? Because it's the Mushroom Kingdom. It's yeah. Instead of using heaven and Saint Peter, we're we're going video game themed version of okay, the, okay, the afterlife. Right. <laughs> okay. it's a bit, why is it a toad? Is is a really lovely existential question to end your, your life. I don't know, I want to be told that I made an awesome video game. Oh, bless yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> every, every game is an attempt at, at that, basically. <laughs> I, you know, actually, seriously, I probably want to be told that I didn't miss out on doing something that I should have done that I would have really much preferred. Hmm. That's the, that's, that would be the thing that would bother me the most, would be that there'd just be something I hadn't even thought of, which would have been better. Like, you know, because you worry that you'll get to, like, St. Peter or, or Toad or, or whatever your particular religious denomination happens to be. <laughs> and he'll be like, did you ever try Huevos Rancheros? And no, you never did, actually. <laughs> classic, classic mistake. You, you'd, have, you'd have bloody loved it. I mean, that's... It would have been <laughs> you. Too bad and they don't make that here. Mexican chef branch of the story? Like, what did you do? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, well, fantastic. You guys win. Um, there, there are no points. It's like whose line is it anyway? It, if there were points, it wouldn't matter. So uh, congratulations. Uh, you get to do the, the credits with me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but thank you guys so much for, for sitting down and talking with me uh, about uh, 80 days and crazy existential questions. Uh, if you could send us off by letting our listeners know where they can go to find out uh, more information about 80 Days and when they can get their hands on it. Uh, so just go to inklestudios.com slash 80 days or follow us on Twitter. We're um, at inklestudios uh, and uh, we've also got a mailing list that you can sign up to on uh, slash 80 days on our website. So yeah, that's where you can find out about it and uh, it should be out Oh, beginning of July, something like yeah. that. We don't have a fixed date yet, but yeah. should be done by then. Well, very cool. Thank you guys once again, and I wish you the best in finishing up the game and, uh, you know, in, in not crunch, but uh, as you go back into the throes of passion. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Thank very, you very much. much. Apparently, I'm really terrible at times. I I managed to read 5:31 as I was like, oh, so it's at, it's at five o'clock on the 31st. That makes perfect sense. Except it. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, I I did that as well, and then I remembered the way that Americans do dates, which is yes. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, well, let's just chalk this one up to Britishness then. <laughs> exactly. It's it's a charming. Or so. or um, Americanness. It, it's okay. I'm, I'm outnumbered on this podcast, so we can, we can chalk it up to Americanness.